0: Hi there, and welcome to the Press Gallery, Edmonton Journal's politics podcast, the term limits edition, which we are recording on August 21st, 2014. My name is Sarah O'Donnell. I'm an editorial writer with the Journal, and I am very happy to be back in my hosting chair after a couple of weeks enjoying Alberta's summer fun with me in the newsroom studio to help me reconnect with this week's big events in provincial politics and how they might be tied to things that I missed Our provincial affairs reporter Miriam Ibrahim. Hello. Content editor, Kathy Kerr. Hi there. And city editor, Mark Ipe, who is making his debut on the podcast.
1: Hello. Yay!
0: Mm-hmm. So thanks for coming on the show, everyone. Now, I was worried that due to my vacation, the Auditor General's special report on former Premier Alison Redford's office expenses and air travel would be old news. But there was more fallout for saw her scathing assessment this week, and we'll talk about what happened. And then we will chat about the PC leadership race, with particular attention to Jim Prentice, who visited the journal's editorial board this week, and then spice things up even further today with a uh, noon-hour speech. But let's start with the Plains, because that is where so many conversations about Alberta politics continue to start these days. It did not take long upon Premier Dave Hancock's return from vacation to publicly address the matters raised by the AG's report pointing to the abuse of government aircraft and other excesses. So word of this scheduled press conference with Hancock and Finance Minister Doug Horner prompted all kinds of speculation about what the news would contain.
2: Miriam, you want to tell me a little bit about what Horner and Hancock actually had to say? Absolutely. So uh, once again, we heard apologies uh, from Premier Hancock. But what they said was that they were going to be introducing some more rules, rule stricter rules, um, better guidelines for the use of the planes. Among them, politicians are going to have to provide a very specific detail about what type of government work is going to be accomplished, you know, when they take that flight. And they're also going to have to show why driving or taking a commercial flight isn't a good option. They've also said that they're going to provide more detail about what the purpose of all of these flights are for. Right now, when you look at the flight manifests, all you really see are attend government news conference or event, generally, or meet with officials. And so that obviously doesn't provide a lot of of detail for for members of the public to scrutinize these flights and whether or not they are actually um, useful and and valuable uh, use of tax dollars. So that's that those were the major rules that were um, introduced. They're also going to be. They've promised. Uh, Finance Minister Doug Horner has promised quarterly updates for how the pl- how the plans are being used, what communities they're serving, and what the cost is. It's interesting. It was the first first time Premier Hancock publicly um, took questions about the Auditor General report. It was nearly two weeks after it was released. He had been on vacation in Italy, and he had done a teleconference from there. Uh, but that was in response to. Uh, uh, MLA Redford's resignation as an MLA. Um, So it was really our first chance to hear from him specifically on that. They also said they're going to be, they're still implementing um, the all of six AG recommendations that were included in that report to strengthen it. Um, But there were some things that they didn't say, you know, they failed to to address the fact that for all of all of this time, there was no oversight on the planes. And, you know, there was no mention made of the, the 2005 report that said Hey, there needs to be stricter rules on these planes. A previous auditor general report. A previous report. auditor general report. That's right. So I mean, here we are, years and years later, and and now they're saying, well, we're introducing stricter rules, but that those calls weren't heated back then.
0: Yeah. So some of the speculation leading up to this news conference was that you know possibly this would be the moment when the PCs decided to scrap the government fleet, or perhaps you know Horner was going to actually fall on his sword and resign at least from cabinet. Were you surprised, Mark and Kathy, that we didn't see either of those things? Or, or why do you think that we didn't see those
3: steps? I, I think one reason is this is a government that's flying around in the Bermuda Triangle of political administration. Uh, they're an interim government, essentially, between premiers, between Redford and who's to come? theoretically Prentice possibly, but who knows, maybe Mm -hmm. Lukasik or McIver. Um, So I think that Hancock is in a difficult position. Um, To actually have Horner resign, you're without a finance minister, that would force an immediate cabinet shuffle. That's a big step for what is essentially an interim premier to take. Uh, And the same thing as well, I think, with the fleets. Um, This would then be tying the hands of the incoming premier. This is really a political decision. And this is a political decision that a new premier, in theory, will want to make. So I think hes they're stuck in limbo. They're stuck in stasis. They have to deal with the immediate emergency. But to change policy or to change horses in midstream in terms of major cabinet positions would be really, really a hard thing for um, uh, Premier Hancock to do at this point, especially when we might have a new premier as, uh, well, we will have a new premier, in fact, by September. And they may even be in the legislature by the fall sitting. That's right. I think yes. The, the, we heard some things from Jim
0: Prentice about how very quickly, if he becomes leader, he wants to sit in uh, the in the legislature. But let me ask you, Mark. The, let's face it. I mean, the finance minister has really taken a beating since this auditor general's report. What did you think of the fact that the premier Dave Hancock seemed to go to great lengths to defend him? Did that did that surprise you at all?
1: You know, a little bit maybe, but. As Kathy said, I think they know that they're in these final stretches. The leadership campaign is basically all but over at this point in that they only have a few weeks left and they know that there's only so much that they can do dramatic changes that they can make in the last two weeks. They they know they have to stop the bleeding a little bit but they also know that they kind of need to move on as quickly as they possibly can and they wanted to get... Hancock and Horner out there in front of the cameras as, as Miriam said uh, the premier wasn't available at the time he was on vacation at the time so they wanted to get him out there they wanted to have that sort of public apology try and move on as quickly as possible
0: is anyone keeping track of the apologies flying around the Alberta legislature in the last few months? I think that would make an interesting list. And I did want to ask you guys about that, because uh, wasn't it the first thing that the Premier Hancock said was was an apology? He, he delivered two of them on Monday, it seemed, he or Tuesday, when they had the press conference. It was the initial overall apology. But then he also was apologizing for information that he gave to the legislature about one of the specific trips um do you think those those apologies will sway albertans do you think that's going to change
2: people's minds at this point the thing about that one well i mean there's there's two there's two pieces to that one is that we're when the mlas get back to the legislature when the session is back in there's going to be a point of privilege raised about the comments that premier hancock and other ministers made about that grand prairie flight the one that the ag found was inappropriate Found it was a government flight that was taken to a PC party fundraiser, a leadership, uh, a leaders' dinner. And so there's that, there's that one part of it. And, you know, I don't think the average Albertan is really paying attention necessarily to the, you know, the inner workings of parliamentary procedure and whether or not Hancock misled the House or if any of these other ministers did or not. But what I do think they hear is that just a few months ago, Hancock and, you know, Fred Horn, Wayne Drysdale, all these other, uh, Jonathan Dennis were all. Really vehemently defending that flight saying that it was government business that there was a hospital being announced that it was important government business and it needed to happen calling the allegations despicable Um, and I so I think that's what will stay with Albertans you know not not so much about whether or not it was a misleading of the house but the fact that just a few months ago they were defending it so much and I think the question is then how come you didn't know it was inappropriate
0: as the current PC cabinet apologizes for the past. PC leadership candidate Jim Prentice made an announcement today that would significantly shake things up for the future. It sounds like now originally we had planned to focus on his comments to the journal's editorial board on Monday, which we had a you know an hour long interview with him, and he said a lot of really interesting things which we can we can talk about. But his speech on noon to, at noon today oh we have to talk about that. Now this was billed as a speech about ending entitlements and restoring public trust. Anyone want to? give the Kohl's notes details for people because I don't think I
2: can do it without simply ranting well what I mean when he launched his campaign he's he's talked you know at length about needing to end entitlements and a Jim Prentice government would end entitlements and clean up government Um, and so today he came out with this with this policy announcement saying that he would if he becomes the next premier introduce an accountability act to the legislature that would limit MLAs members of the Legislative Assembly to three terms and limit premiers to two terms this raises lots of questions obviously just uh, just about term limits so many questions Um, that then there were a few other pieces of this um, sort of policy that he announced he also said he would increase the cooling off period for for former political um, staffers and politicians right now it's at six months. And, and you know he's also said this in the past but end sole source contracts that sort of thing no more consultants as lobbyists that sort of thing but yeah I mean obviously the term limits announcement is the one that's been getting quite a lot of attention because um, some people are, are suggesting That it's not really constitutional.
0: I I don't think it is constitutional. The mere mention of this phrase, term limits, it, it really does cause my head to explode because I think it goes against the principles of how we do government in Canada. So why on earth would any smart politician want to walk down this road? Tell me. Tell me. I,
3: I think one of the issues that, that comes up is over and over again, the criticism that keeps popping up around the Tories is they're tired. They feel entitled. They've been in power too long. So this is, an, to some extent, an answer to that. We are going to renew ourselves essentially by in- ensuring that no one is in power too long ever again because they will only ever have two term limits as premier um, and three limits as an MLA. I I think that this is uh, uh, partly about appearing to renew the party, uh, appearing to renew the legislature. Um, uh, You know, it's a bit of, you know, there are some people who appear to be tired. We will give them a rest. Right.
1: He did talk about that in the editorial board with us. He spent some time talking about renewing the party party. And I think he spent a bit of time talking about that and wanting to bring some new blood in. He didn't give us very many details he no. didn't sort of certainly didn't give any names no. but uh he did spend some time talking about that about wanting to bring some new blood into the party.
0: Did he go into that into the speech anymore, Miriam? like
2: how new does yeah. he want the blood like well i mean he, there there's an interesting piece in this uh in this there's an interesting line in this speech, and I think we can maybe read into it what we may, but he says simply put. I don't believe this mess can be cleaned up by someone who was on the inside sitting at the cabinet cabinet table as decisions were being made. That raises a whole other set of questions like who's going to be left for you to be in your cabinet.
0: That's like 30 people who have been sitting around the cabinet table at yeah, this point within exactly. the existing party.
2: And the other thing that people have been pointing out about term limits is that um, a lot of the problems have, you know, that the party is sort of facing right now have been uh, as a result of things that Redford did. This wouldn't have applied. This wouldn't have. This wouldn't have got her out of office. She was. She was only an MLA for two terms. Not even premier for one.
3: Mm-hmm. There's not a, even. There's another issue too. I mean, in the in the concept of you know, the term limits and renewing your government. Uh, I mean, realistically, there is kind of a catch-22 in that. It's fine for a guy who's 57 or 58 years old, like Jim Prentice, to say, I would only serve for two terms. He's then retirement age. If you really want to renew your party and you want somebody to come in there who's some young whippersnapper of 35 or 40, that means that by the time that they're pitched out, they're still... In basically their work life. So they can't have a permanent career in politics. You're also saying that we're going to cut down on consultancy in terms of what you can do after government. So essentially, what do you do? You know, when you hit 50 and you're out on your rear end, um, and you can't immediately get a job helping with government on the outside, I mean theoretically somebody may pick you up, but what if not? Um, then then you're kind of in limbo. So it, it basically says, well, if you're independently wealthy and you're 35, you can do that because you can retire at 50. And
1: there are a lot of those, obviously. And
3: there are a lot of those, mm. but is that a way to get new blood into your party? I, I don't know. Well, and, and so obviously the speech was only delivered a few hours ago
2: um, and so most of the reaction I've seen is in the uh, is on Twitter which can be a bit of an echo chamber but there have been some interesting questions raised um, and 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 one of them is well what happens if you have a bunch of minority governments in a row does, what does that do I mean if you have a minority government that you know in elections that are being called every couple of years those term limit that that term limit comes up pretty quickly.
0: Yeah, and and I th- think that it's interesting that he is tr- proposing to solve a problem within the progressive conservative party by proposing new rules that would apply to all parties. Everybody, yeah, and I just don't think I don't know if that's. The right way to do party renewal I'm in fact I'm going to go on the record As being totally against this idea um, It's possibly the worst idea I've heard in a long time In Alberta politics And both statements from Sarah. Yeah no The <laughs> very purpose of elections And I know this is not a new new. Everyone's been saying this But the very purpose of elections Is to You know Give that renewal If the voters like you They'll keep you And if they don't They'll give you a term limit I, I think through your service So I mean even in the US Only the top leadership people The governors, the presidents, sometimes mayors have term limits. Congressmen and senators, they can be around for... I mean, if that's where we're pulling our model from, uh, I just think this is a bad idea.
1: I think the prime minister has proposed in the Senate to try and impose term limits. Mm-hmm. Right now there's a limit in, in terms of age and being the age of that's 75. an appointed body though, and, right? And that's so the that's only place that it exists in Canada. There is nowhere else I don't think and I can, I can
0: possibly see that for an appointed body where you have like one person sure. appointing people to- And no chance to ever vote someone. That's somebody. right, yeah. yeah, but that's, yes. So what do you think, I don't know if you want to say whether you think it's a good idea or a bad idea, but if Alberta had lived under these rules for a while, like what would have been the consequences? We were talking
3: about that. Well, I, I think one good one is, for instance, Peter Lougheed, you know, seen as, you know, the great savior of Alberta and the Conservative Party to begin with. He was a pretty good premier. I and think he was people, people agree. He was yeah. a pretty good premier. He would have been out in 1979, oh. um, which would have been really cut short his career in the sense that in 1980, he was battling with Pierre Elliott Trudeau over the National Energy Program. Who else in that government would have been able to stand toe-to-toe with Pierre Elliott Trudeau? I can't think of who would have at that time. Um, and surely he did do things in the last six years of his career that some Albertans would say were a great contribution to the province. So he's an example of one where you might not have wanted to limit what he was doing. And I, you know, there, certainly there have been some where you would say, two two terms was plenty but uh but there always is going to be a couple of exceptions where you get an extremely gifted public servant um who actually only hits their stride in the seventh or eighth or ninth year of uh, of their career well
2: and think about like some of the you know when you're talking about that like a younger mla who gets elected who may be asked to wait one or two terms before they ever get appointed to cabinet to really be able to affect change I mean, you're you're cutting their legs out from under them by doing that because you're you're saying, well, you're going to be limited to this one term, and 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 there you go. I mean, you know, if if that's how long it takes for you to get into cabinet, for example.
0: Yeah, I I wonder if this is is this Jim Prentice's way of saying like, he made a mistake for running for leadership because I thought this must be a signal to all of those people who are already in his party, some of them who have served many many terms that. Yeah, you you really need to step away now. I I just I don't can't imagine his caucus loving this speech, but maybe I'm wrong. I'm not a PC member, so
2: people are pretty support. I mean. Uh- The MLAs and ministers who have indicated their support for him have been pretty steadfast in that support. I mean, these term limits would be grandfathered in, so none of the current MLAs would presumably be even affected by it. But it does certainly send a Hmm. message to them. Hmm. Um, You know, if you're saying, I think people should be limited to three terms and you've got people sitting in your backbench for four or five. Yeah. You know, maybe that sends sort of a clear message to them saying, you know, maybe you're past your expiration date.
0: I have also heard accusations that this is a distraction from other political issues. That the term limits is a shiny bubble that uh, is distracting us from talking about real issues. What do you think? Are well, we missing I've, real I, issues because we're talking term limits today? I
1: mean, I, I certainly think that. Again, going back to the fact that they're in the in the homestretch, I think it's awfully hard to get real sentences out of them outside of their their sort of set their set pieces of what they're trying to get across. Uh, they don't they're not looking to be controversial. This can be seen as controversial, I guess, but at the same time, I think he he can only do so much at this point. He's trying to convince people that he's going to be different mm. and he is he's is he grasping with with some of this maybe i mean there are people who might think he is, but he's trying to do anything he can to to appear different from the other leadership candidates and from the certainly the previous government
0: how surprised were you guys when he told the editorial board that he wanted to very quickly call a by-election if he becomes leader and wins this uh, leadership race in September I mean he says he wants to keep session on track for the end of October and uh, he would plan to run in a by-election in northern Calgary did that catch anyone off guard or did that
3: seem to be to fit with what we know of his style I I think it did catch catch me at least off guard and it made me feel completely exhausted cuz haven't we had enough politics <laughs> for the last 6 months like it's just endless drama in a what a is normally a pretty quiet political province with a you know one party government i do think i was surprised to hear that i i generally speaking the fall sitting is not really where you see a lot of benchmark legislation come through i'm i'm not going to say it's not important but it's it's not when you generally bring in your budget It's not when you have your throne speech. I don't see the harm in waiting till a spring sitting, and that would give him a time to, you know, take a deep breath. It also is taking a chance in the sense that people will be back home in the fall and starting to pay attention in September. Um, So actually, he might get a surprise wherever he decides to to run. If people are still really ticked off about the situation with the uh, previous administration under Redford, he might get some blowback wherever he decides to run, although it sounds like he's going to pick a pretty safe constituency in northwest Calgary. Um, you know, it's it is taking a risk uh, and he doesn't strike me as a real risk taker.
2: It, hmm. it surprised me, too, um, because, yeah, I mean, the turnaround to call that election would be quick. if You're going to get it done in time for him to be in the premier's seat in the House when session is on. I mean, we're talking a couple of weeks here to, to, to get all of that sorted. So yeah, I was pretty surprised, but he did seem pretty adamant. He said more than once that the premier belongs in the legislature. And I do think there, you know, there is a pretty effective opposition out there. And I think he would be putting, he would be undermining his leadership a little bit and putting it at risk a little bit if he's not in the house facing questions from Daniel Smith and, you know, whoever becomes the new NDP leader, if that's Rachel Notley or David Egan, um, and, and, and the liberal party as well, you know, not being there to to be able to respond to those questions as they're being hurled across the floor could do real damage to his leadership i think
0: okay well thanks guys that was a really good discussion on an impromptu topic and uh i will try to climb off my high horse or climb down from my high horse for a moment and get back to earth for good stuff from the gallery that is our weekly installment where we suggest a good piece of reading listening or viewing that have, usually we try to make sure it has some kind of political connection. We've had a couple of suggestions come in from readers via Facebook that I just haven't had a chance to check out. So I'm going to click on those links before I before I uh, pass them on. But hopefully we'll have a listener suggestion or two for next week. But Miriam, do you want to start us off this week with a, sure. uh,
2: your good stuff? Yes. um, So the one I'm suggesting for this week was actually published last week in the Toronto Star. Um, It's by Jennifer Yang. She's their global health reporter and she went to Sierra Leone and wrote a really incredible and eye opening report about, um, the struggle to, to contain Ebola there, sort of in the midst of this, this really crazy outbreak. Um, so that's my recommendation. It's called in Sierra Leone An exhausting struggle to contain Ebola. And if you have time, there's also this really great, um, blog that she's done, um, talking about how she's, she was screened after she left the country.
0: Oh, interesting. That sounds good. I haven't read it yet. Thank you. Um, I'll jump in. I'm going to suggest something a little bit from the pop. Well, not a little bit. It's definitely firmly in the pop culture world, but it's. Uh, I've watched it the last few weeks on HBO. It's called Generation Kill. It's uh, a miniseries from the creator of The Wire. And uh, it's, it's based on the 2004 book by Evan Wright, a journalist who was embedded with a uh, team of s- Marines as they rolled into Iraq for the... Uh, Operation Iraqi Freedom, um, and it's it's the story of that war f- through the first forty days only through their eyes. But I, you know, I admit that I started watching it because uh, Alexander Skarsgård of uh, True Blood, <laughs> True Blood is on it, and also you know the creator of The Wire that attracted me. But it's it's I have I have not read the book. I'm going to now because it was really really good. And uh, it's really haunting to watch how, even in those first 40 days, at least as told by this miniseries, the soldiers, some of them are really good, some of them are very incompetent, but there's a lot of them looking at what's going on and worried about how this will haunt them in years to come, and it certainly has haunted us all for years to come. So I recommend that miniseries, Generation Kill. It's on HBO right now, but I'm sure you can find it on other places. On the internet, Mark or Kathy, want to
3: jump in with something? Um, I have something for, for history buffs who love to see the uh, roots of the uh, present in the past. I'm reading a book that's called Lawrence in Arabia. Not Lawrence of Arabia, but Lawrence in Arabia. It does center somewhat around um, T.H. Lawrence, uh, of course, Lawrence of Arabia. However, what it does is it it's quite a good analysis of what was happening uh, at the beginning of and through the First World War in the Middle East and how the um, colonial masters, uh, the, the the imperialist uh, powers of that era were carving up the Ottoman Empire and uh, some of the roots of the, the issues that we see today in the Middle East were largely set by that colonial past and a lot of dirty dealing on the parts of the British and the French um, uh, it's a really interesting book and, and of course also Lawrence is a fascinating guy but it also centers on on a, a host of other characters in, including a, um, a guy who was basically an industrial spy for American oil interests and um, a German spy who was based out of Cairo and was running this bizarre network of of matahari type spies through through the area it it does make for one thing the era sound like it would have been fascinating to be in cities like cairo and istanbul at the time but uh, but it also does show how the carving up of that whole area has led to some of the major issues that are happening today
0: Ooh, that sounds good too yeah. although will i wait for it to come out in miniseries form i don't know no, i'm just kidding <laughs> okay. so it would make a great miniseries it sounds actually. like it would yeah. and mark let's wrap up with you
1: i'd say you know it's not a single piece so much as it's a sort of a news topic that's been, that's been going on with the 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 languages commissioner has been looking into tweets by John Baird. Oh, that's right. And he's been lo- they've been looking at whether or not he's been tweeting enough in French from his Twitter handle, from his Twitter account. And Baird's office is saying that he, it's his personal account, but you know, on the account it's listed as as MP and Minister of Foreign Affairs. So th- what kind of leeway does the the language commissioner have to reach right into your or into social media in that sense and determine whether or not he's tweeting enough in English and in French I know in in 2011 in New Brunswick the provincial language commissioner said all communication from politicians must be in English and French but it's a fully bilingual province granted the federal government is also considered bilingual but in terms so of. So if
0: they're tw- tweeting some smart ass comment, they have to tweet it both in English and in follow up in <laughs> <French>. And this <laughs> is the debate
1: because one of the tweets he sent is, you know, I think there was a photo of a Tim Hortons cup and Baird saying after three weeks out of town this is the best part about getting home or something. Is he supposed to put that out in both languages? I would it, like
2: to see how some of these insults get translated to French and how much we lose, exactly. in, the, in, the, <laughs> yeah. lose in the translation yeah. or either way.
0: Oy, okay, well, no, well, we'll put up a, a few links to stories about that then because that is a good one. Look at us. It's almost another good stuff top, or another topic we could hold, dig into perhaps next week. But that is it for this week. Thanks to Mark, Kathy, and Miriam for joining me this week, and to my friend and colleague Keith Durine for filling in as host for the last two weeks, and thanks to videographer Ryan Jackson, who will post a video clip from this week's episode. You'll be able to find that and previous episodes of the Press Gallery on edmontonjournal.com, And you can always find the show and subscribe on SoundCloud and iTunes. Just search Edmonton Journal and the Press Gallery, and you should find those links. And uh, please join us on Facebook, where I hope to crank up the conversation. Thanks so much for listening, and please join us again next week in the Press Gallery.